and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. In part one of this mini shoulder masterclass with specialist physiotherapist Joe Gibson, we tackled a simple and straightforward approach to assessing and diagnosing shoulder problems in athletes. In today's part two, I'm going to start by asking Joe about how she approaches return to sport for a rugby player with shoulder instability. Don't forget to check out the show notes for links to the resources that Joe mentions. Okay, here's the episode. Let's talk about the rehabilitation program itself. And I want to build in return to sport in there because we're hearing a lot more about, you know, return to sport as a continuum and much more of a blending of return to sport and rehabilitation as opposed to, I think, how we used to think about rehabilitation was it was this whole block of time. And then we think about return to sport at the end of rehab. How do you approach this return to sport planning with different athletes, Joe? And particularly, how would you approach it with our case, our rugby player case? Well, Claire, without kind of blowing smoke, as they say, I I think you've done a great job in getting us to reflect on this in terms of, you know, the lovely work that you've done around this and the return to participation, sport and performance all being very different things. And I, and I love a concept of reverse engineering. So for me, it's like, I know what that athlete's going to got to get back to. I know the kind of qualities they require to be able to do that safely. And it's kind of, well, what are all the things I can do from the outset that set them up? And then for them to take contact, for them to go into a tackle, then to have that kind of lack of predictability by going into an actual contact situation. How can I actually plan that? And so it's almost breaking it down into those different stages. And again, I think why I really like it as a question is, I really struggle with some of the return to play stuff that's out there because there's some great work looking at reliability and consistency and and what things tell us, but actually they're often not very relevant to the sport that that athlete does. And so what I find with things like the ash test, things like Adele Fanning's done some lovely work about the drop down test, the counter movement jump and the press jump that again, they don't correlate with strength. So they do tell us something else about neuromuscular control. But what I find when I look at my progression If they're doing similar sorts of activities that look what they do on the pitch, they correlate well with those tests. So I think I never use any of those tests in isolation. And some of the tests that are out there, I might use much earlier in the process, but really they're only to give a transparency or a number to the things that should be represented in my rehab. So if you take somebody like this rugby player, let's assume that we think she's had some sort of instability episode. My key ingredients are range of movement. So I'll get them moving early. I just unload that shoulder to a point it doesn't hurt and I give it time to recover, but I want her moving. Her muscle system, so muscle function, which is that neuromuscular control and recruitment through range. So I just get her doing something through range with a loop of TheraBand. I know everybody hates yellow TheraBand, but it's brilliant for recruitment and an early entry exercise just to keep things ticking over. And we've got good evidence for that. I guess it helps her feel like she's, you know, making progress as well and she's able to do something. Oh, I'm so glad you said that, Claire, because I think for me, there's two big things I always say to the athletes. It's the can do, not the can't do. So what are all the things we can work on? Let's not worry about the stuff that we can't. And the second thing is injury is an awesome opportunity to work on all the things that could potentially make you a better athlete. So we know in something like rugby, tackling ability is more highly correlated with lower limb strength and power than anything to do with the shoulder. So, you know, if they have to be immobilized or they really can't do much with their shoulder for a period of time, let's really go for it with the lower quadrant and make the most of this time. And the psychology of that athlete and doing stuff that relates to what they want to get back to is just so pivotal. 
So kind of going on from what you've just said, if I, I, I talked about the muscle system and strength and the other thing is I've got to be this neuromuscular control. So if we break it down in terms of the shoulder, generally we look at it in terms of preparatory activation. So getting ready for action and then that reactive stabilization. So I can do drop and catch stuff for that reactive stuff. I could do plyos against the wall. We could throw and catch a rugby ball. We can do it at low level, but again, because it has relevance to them and it's like what they want to get back to, I'm getting so many different positive facts from that. Same with my preparatory stuff, you know, closed chain stuff is great. But again, if it's somebody has got to go into the mall, we can work in those sorts of positions. We just vary the load according to the stage of rehab that they're at. So I guess it's just taking all those things they've got to do, bringing it back to a level that's reasonable for the injury they've had, but always that, you know, the shoulder is such a sensory monster. It just loves attention. So the more we can give it early in that rehab process, immediately post-injury, then actually I think we would stop a lot of the problems that I see in these athletes that then are are failing to progress. The key principles of successful rehab, and I think you've outlined them really well. I want to pick up on load management because I think managing load for someone who throws is reasonably straightforward in that you can do things like count the number of throws or if you're working with a baseball pitcher, you can look at how far they're throwing or how many pitches, those sorts of things. How do you manage load for a rugby player? It's not easy. <laughs> I think the first thing is building it up appropriately. So there's some fantastic videos out there looking at that progression, you know, of tackle bags and contact and how we can make sure that athlete's safe and building that complexity issue. So I think the first thing is they've got to have gone through that until you put them on a pitch. But then I think also in terms of getting them back onto that pitch, we want to build up the time, the number of contacts. We might take them out intermittently during a training session then build up to a full training session, then ultimately do very similar things in the match. But I think on what's really helpful and can be very useful in terms of on field tests is just something really simple like the GERD. So the GERD gets bad press and we kind of, you know, does it matter, doesn't it? If you've got somebody who hasn't got movement restriction and you measure their internal rotation in neutral at 90, and then they do a bit of a session, they have a few tackles, they come off, you reassess it again and it's stiffer, they're fatigued. And we know that we, again, ankles has done lovely work showing how well that correlates with fatigue. And it also correlates with a, a kind of deterioration in your cuff function. Now it might be that I just need to do something to get that going again. And if I can recover that good, then okay, off you go. But I think we can use some simple things like that just to support whether our athlete is ready and if they're coping with that load. So it's certainly some of the clubs I work with use it in the morning as a, have they recovered from training? Are they ready to go again? If it's deteriorated, they do a kind of activation drill. If it's better, they can train. If it isn't, they modify their load. So I think there are some simple things that we can do. And obviously that's not the only thing we would do, but it's one simple example. And so the fact is, if we use those things alongside taking a scientific approach to how we're increasing it, then we're kind of looking at both aspects. We've got something to measure that gives us that warning system. They're not coping. But secondly, we're kind of building it up in a sensible way. That's great. Now let's talk again specifically about some of these return to sport aspects. How are you and the athlete going to know together when she's ready to go back to contact tackling and rugby? We know that rugby is a collision sport. So how are you going to know when she's ready? Yeah. And again, I think this is where the evidence is really helpful in terms of understanding the kind of forces that somebody's over when they go back to rugby. But my first almost kind of takes us full circle to where we started is does the athlete feel ready? Because it doesn't matter how many tests I do and how well they score. If they don't feel confident, 
they're not ready because we know if they're not confident, they won't move efficiently. They're more likely to get injured again. Now, there are some scores out there, the Circe score, the shoulder instability return to sport index that has some good validity. But we have to be a little bit careful. It's not infallible. You know, Ian Hurley's done some research showing that something like 25% of players that went back to play actually scored at a level on that score that would suggest they weren't ready. And yet they felt ready, even though they were reporting some things. So there's some complexities there that we maybe don't tease out with the questionnaires sometime. And that's why that therapeutic alliance is so important. So psychological readiness is absolutely key. But I think going back to what you were saying before about that progression through rehab, as long as you've got clear goals, short term, long term, you get the athlete to tell you what's best for them to support them, whether it's a chart, whether it's a, you know, stage one, two, three, whether it's at whatever works for them and their learning style will might dictate something differently. But basically, we've got that psychological readiness shouldn't be an issue because that's something we should be revisiting throughout the process. Now, again, you'll know because you were involved the burn consensus recently. The Schwank article 2022 was a fantastic summary of what's out there, but also a real call to arms to reflect on what we're doing. So for me, it goes back to those ingredients that we talked about. So there's some basic prerequisites in terms of range of movement and strength. As I say, we have lots of nice normative data in the rugby population about ratios and percentage body weight of external rotation and things like that. And as I said, I really like the ASH test and I really like Adele Fanning's work as well. So I like those things as return to play as well as once my athlete's able to get into those positions. So I say Adele does accounts, she uses force plates. So again, I only use those when I'm working somewhere with those and does a counter movement jump, a press jump, which is from a press up position, and then starting on two steps and then dropping down and looking at force absorption. Now, the reason I mentioned the Ash and Adele Fanning's work is, is purely because of that neuromuscular element in that they don't correlate well with strength. So a rugby player I saw yesterday would be very indicative of the lady that you've shared as an example, in that every strength test I do, he's off the scale, he ticks all the boxes, but you do the Ash test, and his force production curves rubbish and he can't maintain peak force. But then also I do a drop down test and he, you can just see subjectively he's not happy to take the load the same way on that shoulder. So it's having tests that give me something different. So those things, range of movement, muscle strength, the ash test and Adele's were in a rugby player would definitely figure. I do some form of reactive test as well in terms of drop and catch, because that seems to correlate well with some of those neuromuscular elements. And then I always look at the effect of a fatiguing drill on those same tests. So I'll do the ash before and after doing some tackle practice or tackle bags. Clearly, I don't hold the tackle bag. But I work with people who can. And we have a we have a boxing bag as well, which we can use in a similar way. So I want to look at that fatigue resistance as well. But those are probably the mainstay of what I do. I like to have something kinetic chain in there. Again, in rugby, there are some good normative values for things like side plank and plank, but they'll be doing that way earlier in the process. Do you know what I mean? That shouldn't be a return to play thing because it should be part of that rehab process. But I think where these things are so useful, yes, we want that shape of the curve. We want that peak power. We want all those things we've talked about. But often I'll find somebody's come in who's tried to go back to play. We do the ash test. We see that force production curve. We then do something really simple, like some weight bearing through range or that short lever exercise that I talked about earlier with the loop of therabands. And that force production curve is better straight away. And their peak power is better straight away. But that's so empowering because it brings us back to the relevance of those neuromuscular or sensory motor aspects. So I guess my return to play very much reflects everything I'm considering from the word go, 
and I interest apart from Adele's drop down stuff, which clearly has to be when they're ready to take that load and contact. Certainly, the ash test I'd be using much earlier in that process. And Adele Fanning's test, how do you set that up, Joe? That's two steps either side. How high are the steps? If I remember rightly, they're 12 inches. There's a whole load of normative data as well, which obviously is really, really helpful. But you do need force plates for that. I think I think my experience, certainly working in clinics where they're not available, is even doing that as a test, as an athlete's willingness to absorb force actually subjectively is actually quite reliable. So even though you might not have the numbers, it will still pick something up. And the ASH test kind of correlates quite nicely with some of those parameters. And for the listeners who are not familiar, we'll put some links in the show notes for these different tests. Other authors have definitely looked at the counter movement jump. And I think in rugby, there's no doubt that those things have relevance. I guess the only other thing to say, and it kind of brings us back to that psychosocial domain. Another reason I quite like the ASH test is that in the T position, so you can imagine when the arms are out at the side, that's probably the least stable position and where you really need them to have good control through their kinetic chain. So again, there's some lovely references that you can access on the web that tell you that how to score it and what's acceptable and what's not. But I have to say that in athletes that are a bit scared and are protecting their shoulders, you imagine a rugby player who goes into contact, who almost drops his body away to try and protect it, but makes his shoulder more vulnerable. We're trying to collate data at the moment because what we're seeing is they get a massive drop off in that T position because they kind of go into that protect mode. So I think the exciting thing is there's lots of people working on this at the moment. We all recognize there are some deficits in what we're doing. But as ever, I think what you can see from what we've talked about, I can break it down in terms of those kinetic chain measures and looking at that athlete move. The test just give me that transparency in terms of a number or something I can be measured to make sure my intervention's been successful. Now, Joe, let's finish by talking a little bit about why athletes don't get back to sport and what we as clinicians can do to support them. Yeah. So again, great time to talk about this because we've had some really nice papers about this recently. There's absolutely no doubt that having persistent symptoms is an issue. So whether it's pain or apprehension, that can be a big deal breaker in that athletes just don't want to have to think about their shoulder. And so I, I, I've definitely had conversations with athletes saying, well, if I've got to do this to be able to keep playing, I'm not sure I want to. And it's like, well, that's fine. That's you're a human and you, particularly you've had a good career and you're at a point where the injuries are coming thicker and faster. So I do think asking that question sometimes is important. We always assume they want to get back. And sometimes they just want to have a shoulder that's going to last their life and allow them to play with their kids or whatever. So Persistent pain and apprehension is definitely one to consider. And, and so all the things we've talked about might contribute to that. Natural end of career is well reported. Lifestyle change that they found other priorities while they were injured. There's some early warning symptoms. So certainly high levels of pain and disability measured on something like the SPADI, the shoulder pain and disability index, are a high predictor not only of recurrence, but persistent symptoms and less likely to go back to sport. But a biggie is negative beliefs and expectations. So believing they're broken, believing it's damaged, believing it will never be back to normal. So I think you can see there's a big kind of kind of big emphasis in that social domain again, as well as the fact that if you play rugby, let's face it, it's like a physical car crash when you go into some of those contact situations. So, you know, the recurrence rate is no great surprise higher in rugby. If you look at something like stabilization surgery, you know, even with things like Latage. So I think the challenge for a physio is greater because you're trying to build more capacity in an athlete that already has a whole lot of capacity. 
And the fact is the nature of the sport is very demanding. So I think it is important sometimes to have these very honest conversations because sometimes that hasn't been had because everybody's about, I'm going to get you back. And sometimes the athlete needs permission that actually it's okay to say, I've had enough. I've been through this one time too many. The belief system, unrealistic expectations, something structural that's just not addressable or persistent symptoms. And Joe, I think that brings us back beautifully to that whole idea of communication and listening and listening to the athlete. Really listening is going to give you a lot of clues as to where she or he or they are at in terms of, is this something that they're, they're ready to give up? Is it a time to move on to a different sport? Or is this very much about, no, I'm really committed to getting back to sport and that's going to change the way that you as a clinician think about it. And then you and the athlete together make a plan. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's always lovely talking about things like this. And to me, it's about building some key foundations, remembering the shoulder lights, attention and emphasizing those sensory aspects and the can do. But fundamentally, the ingredients, what we actually do rehab wise are pretty straightforward. If you understand the sport and you replicate a progression that reflects the starting point and how you're going to get back there. What's really, really clear, it's the how we deliver that and building that therapeutic alliance, because if that athlete has a safe space, you know, even if we get them on board, they're going to have blips along that journey. We we know that, you know, looking at the Euros, we've had, you know, the athletes who've had injuries and got back to play talking about just how devastating it was and the things they went through. And it's great that those things are out in the public domain and athlete, it's okay to not be okay when you're going through that process. But you're absolutely right. To me, that is our key and pivotal foundation. Joe Gibson. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, your years of clinical experience, all of these clinical pearls. It's been great having you on JOSPT Insights. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, Claire. Thanks for giving me the chance as ever to geek a bit about the shoulder. Thanks for listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favourite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter, we're at JOSPT, and Facebook, we're JOSPT Official. Talk with you next time. Mm-hmm.